Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Beyond the Cover. I am one of your hosts, John Robb, joined here by my co-host, Jeff Ayers. Jeff, how you doing? Doing great. Hope you're doing okay. Yeah, we got an exciting show for you today. Uh, none other than number one best-selling author here, uh, John Conley, is going to be talking about his latest Charlie Parker book called A Book of Bones, which is released in the United States here on uh, October 2019. People might have said, wait a second, didn't that book come out? Well, it came out in the U.K. in April of 2019, but... Six months later, we finally get over here in the U.S., so we're extremely excited to be able to talk to John. So, John, how are you doing? Thanks so much for coming on again. Pleasure as always. How are you folks? Good. Yeah, we're doing really, really good. We're doing good. So, again, um, congratulations on another Charlie Parker book. I mean, Charlie Parker is, is, is becoming very synonymous in household name with, with thriller books. And A Book of Bones is uh, another incredible one you got coming out here. So tell us a little bit about what you got in this one. Well, um, it, it kind of follows on directly from a book called The Woman in the Woods that I wrote, which left us at the end with Parker wanting to hunt down a lawyer called Quail. Um, and in the a Book of Bones, it becomes clear that Quail is fled back to England, and Parker and Angel and Louis are required to go after him. But finding him means globetrotting a little bit. Um, you know, it's a thriller. There's a difference between th- thrillers and crime novels, I think. Crime novels thrive on confinement. Um, a great example is Isaac Christie. You know, it's a house on an island. It's a boat on a river. It's uh, it's everybody on a train, you know, and nobody can really get away, even when she's wondering about villages, even when she's wondering about London. It often seems that nobody is really able to escape, certainly in the kind of classic novels. Um, but th- and I, so that, that claustrophobia is what gives them a lot of their potency. Thrillers need to roam a little bit. Thrillers have a velocity. Um, and so in that sense, A Book of Bones is very much a thriller because it moves from uh, Maine to the Mexican border to the Netherlands uh, and to England, finally to England. And it also roams through time because the book goes back... Um, you know, it goes back to the to the early 16th century. It it, it drifts uh, because we find we see different versions of these characters. I wanted to do something a bit ambitious, I suppose. I had been, I've gone back and read a lot of 19th century fiction, uh, particularly Dickens, and and I reread Bleak House. I think Bleak House is the greatest novel in the English language. And after it, everything seems a bit thin, and not just uh, physically, because Book of Bones is a big chunk of change. But in terms of character and landscape and these these great pictures he conjures up of London. Um, And we don't really associate crime novels with that kind of length. You know, my friend Declan Hughes, who I I love very much, um, says that really no crime novel should be over about 60,000 words. You know, if it was good enough for Dash O'Hammond, it should be good enough for everybody else. Um, And yet you can do... you can you can do things with 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 more pagination, I suppose, in a bigger book. The issue is whether a book feels long. You know, you can read a short book and it feels long. I remember once reading one of the Booker winners, and I like reading the Booker winners. I like expanding my horizons. But I read one about ten years ago, and it was the longest short book I've ever read in my life. I was convinced that every time I went to bed, somebody was adding extra pages to it because I never seemed to get any closer to the end of it. Um, and so I guess the trick is to give people a long book that, that to them doesn't feel long at all, but it's actually just like immersing yourself in a kind of warm bath, in, in, you know, in something that you can just luxuriate in. And, and you look at it and think, oh, my great, you know, I have another 200 or 300 pages of this to go. I don't want this to end. Um, and I guess that's the hard part. That's a very long answer to a short question, isn't it? <laughs> it's a great answer. That's <laughs> oh, awesome. It's awesome. Um, since you write, so many different genres. I'm wondering, especially with Book of Bones, how did you, while you're writing, change from 
doing the thriller elements to the crime elements to doing historical. It's never really been an issue for me. I, I view genre just as a tool. Um, and the more tools you have in your writer's box, the better a writer you're going to be. Um, and, yeah, you know, it's, having gone off and done things like he, uh, which is very much a piece of literary fiction, having gone off and done uh, The Book of Lost Things, which was kind of fant- fantastic literature, I suppose, um, I kind of feel I've, I've learned a lot of skills, but it's also made me much less purist about genre. I don't trust purists. I, I don't trust people who start assembling rules about how things are written. I had um, dinner, I wrote a little piece about it for a magazine, I had dinner with a, a friend of mine, a, a mystery bookseller, um, who is still very much of the view that um, the mystery novel shouldn't have any elements of the supernatural in it at all. You know, we just thought this was completely beyond the pale. And, and mm. it, that was that, that I had taken a wrong turn right at the start of my career. And, and it still wasn't too late for me to find my way back onto the right path. <laughs> mm. uh, and I've never felt that way about, about the mystery genre. Um, in, in part, that's perhaps to do with my heritage. Um, you know, I don't come from England and I don't come from America. So I'm not beholden to either of those traditions at all. And I come from a society that was always very comfortable with folklore, with mythology, uh, with the supernatural. Uh, And, you know, I come from a Catholic background. It's very hard to be Catholic and a rationalist, you know. (laughs) You carry both (laughs) things around with you. Uh, And so when I began writing, right from the beginning, what emerged was was a combination of things I loved and, and that kind of background. So it was a combination of... M.R. James, for example, who was a great English ghost story writer, um, but also Ross MacDonald uh, and James Lee Burke. And and I didn't realize until a year or two down the line that to many people this counted as coloring outside the lines. And, and some people were very uncomfortable with it. They had a view that really the mystery novel kind of begins with the birth of Sherlock Holmes and ends somewhere with either the death of Poirot or the death of Raymond Chandler, depending upon how much of a purist you are. And anything outside that didn't really count at all. Uh, and so by this point, um, I, it's, it's not really an issue for me. It's not even something that I think about. Um, all I do is I begin writing and and all of these disparate influences come into it. And, you know, if you, if you are a purist and if you only want to read... Um, you know, mystery novels that adhere to Father Ronald Knox's rules of mystery writing or whatever it might be, there is plenty of mystery fiction out there for you. You're never going to run out of that stuff to read. Um, but also, it really doesn't advance the genre in any way. It doesn't change things. And genres in any field, whether it's in art or in music or in writing, they change by people experimenting and pulling things in from outside and gradually that stuff gets absorbed into the mainstream and everything changes a little bit. And I suddenly think mystery fiction is a very, very conservative genre. It, it, it hasn't oh. changed that much in many ways. You know, if you say to somebody, God, I'm writing a standalone novel, it, people clutch their pearls. It's like you told them that you're going to write the next book in Sanskrit or something. And yet, you know, <laughs> if you read a, a mystery novel, a standalone novel, it's often not terribly different tonally from, from what they've written before. You know, it's just more of a chance that one of the lead characters will die, but, but really that's, that's about it. Um, and so I, I, you know, I, I feel that as, as I get older, I'm, I'm actually getting more and more interested in, in expanding my horizons, in taking chances. Um, I once said to my editor that not only should every book be an experiment, but, but every book should carry with it the risk of failure. Because if it doesn't, I, I, I'm not going to learn anything. I'm not going to improve. Um, hmm. and, and yet I understand why um, 
sometimes readers get frustrated with me. I know some of my own readers get frustrated um, because I go off and do other things. And, and booksellers get frustrated because, you know, they want you to write one type of book because they only have one section with your name in it. And if you go from mystery to fantasy to lit to, you know, genre to literary fiction, they start going, well, where are we going to put you? You know, we can't put you in fantasy and mystery fiction, and we can't put you in fiction because your genre. And so the easy thing for them is just not to order books that don't conform to their expectations of you. Um, and I've kind of, you know, I, I've become resigned to that, that over the years. You can, be, you can be disappointed sometimes and not surprised. <laughs> I mean, right. Wow. I mean, Stephen King and Dean Koontz write kind of many different kinds of genres. It's just like, sounds like lazy booksellers. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's, it's, it's just, yeah, they do. And, and I know King would say that he, he really doesn't think in terms of genre fiction anymore. He's probably right, because you reach a certain stage when you're yeah. somebody like King, they're the exceptions to the rule, really, where you become a genre unto yourself. You know, True. you are your genre. And therefore, really, anything that you choose to do is, is going to be acceptable because it conforms to this particular genre that is Stephen King. So Stephen King can write a crime novel or Stephen King can write a fantasy novel or he can write a book about a baseball player or whatever it might be. And it is recognizably a Stephen King novel. But the rest of us don't really get to do that. That's, that's a very exceptional uh, group of novelists who get to do that. Um, mm-hmm. And, and the rest of us have to try and muddle along the, the, the best they can. And, and you know, I, when I talk to younger writers and people who are trying to write, I do say to them that every writer compromises. Somewhere along the line, you, you compromise. And, and it's a very good idea to decide where your point of compromise is going to be as early as possible because it will save you a lot of pain and heartbreak down the line. And in general, it's a compromise along two, it's a point along two axes. Um, the intersecting axes. Um, one is commercial and one is creative. And each requires a sacrifice. So, you know, if you are going to write very, very, very commercial fiction, it's likely that you're not going to get a great deal of critical acclaim for it. And, you know, creatively you may feel a bit stymied, assuming this is something that you even worry about. And if you don't, then God bless you. And on the other side, if you're going to write very, very creative fiction, if you're going to write very, very experimental fiction, you are going to sacrifice a certain amount of commerciality. But you may, in return, feel a greater degree of artistic satisfaction. And so somewhere, we all decide where we're going to compromise along that, those lines. And, um, you know, I, I, when I wrote He, uh, which was the book about Stan Laurel that came out about two years ago, um, yeah. even that involved a series of compromises. Because, you know, my, and my editors, you know, they wanted to pay me, and, and they did pay me in the end, kind of an advance that would cover my mortgage for about a month and a half. You know, that was the level of, of the, their commitment to it, you know. Well, they were going to publish it, and they would publish it well, but I had to accept part of the sacrifice. You know, I, I had to take on part of the risk. And this is after being with them for, at that stage, 18 years, you know. Yeah, wow. um, and you, you, you accept that because, yeah, you know, it's not going to sell as well as a Parker book. In fact, we didn't know how it was going to sell or if it was going to sell at all. And it was enough for me that even though I'd spent a decade pretty much working on this book, it was enough for me knowing that it was going to be put out there and put out there well. But what was interesting was that the traffic between literary fiction and genre fiction is almost entirely in one direction. And it is from literary fiction to genre fiction. And it's primarily from literary fiction to 
to mystery fiction. Literary writers like writing detective fiction. You know, it has a, a degree of intellectual respectability to it and, and always has. Um, in general, they may dabble very occasionally in something like a Western or, you know, if you're Colton Whitehead, you may decide to, to look at horror, but by and large, it's mystery fiction. But whatever genre they choose, the traffic is, there's almost no traffic in the other direction. You've got the road pretty much to yourself. Um, you know, because... Mm-hmm. As I learned, a genre writer writing literary fiction will always be considered a dog walking on its hind legs. That's what you are. <laughs> you kind of they look at you and go, oh, "That's very novel." You know, you, you can walk on its hind legs. They, they're pretty certain that eventually you're going to go back to walking on four legs, and, and everything will return to the status quo. Right. Nothing worse than looking at a dog trying to be human for too long. But um, but you know that 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 issue is, is is kind of the way they look at it, and. Um, and it's partly a view of, of genre fiction that persists to this day, which is that, yes, a literary writer can bring something to genre fiction that would not be there otherwise. He will elevate or she will elevate the standard of the writing, the standard of the characterization. A, a genre writer moving to literary fiction can't possibly have anything to offer. Right. What, what is going to bring that we don't have already? <laughs> and you kind of, well, that's the right. thing. Yeah. And that's, that's the tough gonna, part. It's going to change. It's like complaining yeah, about I mean. Women. Yeah, I mean, the tough part is trying to rehash the kind of the same kind of storylines that have been written a thousand, a thousand times over and over again. And that's why when you have Charlie Parker, when you have those paranormal elements, when you have those emotional elements kind of in there, now a 17-book series, you have kind of had to regenerate this character, I think, a couple. Uh, I think there's three books in your series that I can kind of point to that was like, you kind of had to regenerate Charlie Parker in a way. The Burning Soul is always my favorite, I think, in your series. Um, it was just a book that, and I think it was a turning point. I think that was one of those books where you kind of took Charlie and was like, okay, we're going to go this way now. Do you kind of have a book like that where you kind of look back and say, you know what, I kind of took Charlie, kind of put him into a blender, and then threw him back out? Yeah, you do go through phases of, it's not quite rebooting it, but, but rewiring, reworking the machine. Right, kind of rewiring them. Yeah, The Black Angel is, is one of those books. The Black Angel, like... Ah, oh, The Black Angel. A Parker yeah. book for, for two years. You know, I'd taken time out to kind of figure out what kind of writer I wanted to be. I was very young when I was first published um, and was taken a little bit by surprise. And that one of the best decisions I made was that I, I took... I, I wrote a standalone, which, to be fair, Parker kind of figured in the background of it. But I also sat down and I wrote short stories and novellas for a year just to mm-hmm. try different voices. I was like trying on different hats <laughs> to see which of them might fit. And so when I came back to Black Angel, I'd had time to think about what I wanted to do within the genre and, and how I could begin expanding upon the, th- the elements that interested me, which was, can you keep these fantastical elements in it? Can you uh, introduce these elements of the site, the mythological, the metaphysical, the supernatural, and still keep it, kind of recognizably within the mystery genre as long as you have a wider conception of the mystery novel. And then The Wolf in Winter was a book where I very consciously was, was thinking, okay, I, I'm going to change a lot of things here. Um, it's a book where halfway through the narration changes. It changes from the first person to the third person and never goes back again. Uh, what happens if you take the lead character out of the book and don't tell anybody what happened? <laughs> what do you do? Yeah. And you just think, what happens to the, to the reader then? Uh, what happens if a reader who, um, by that stage, people would have been used to hearing Parker's voice for 10 or 11 books, what happens if you take that voice away? What what do they have left? And what does it allow you to do as a writer that you might not otherwise be able to do? Um, 
you know, the, the book I've just, that will come out next year is a book called The Dirty South. And The Dirty South, because, you know, the, the, the Book of Bones kind of ties up a six-novel sequence. You know, it kind of goes right back to The Woman in the Woods again, or to The Wolf in Winter again. And um, The Dirty South is set just very shortly before the events of Every Dead Thing. So Parker has, has lost his wife and child, but he has not begun the hunt for the man who... Re- or he is in the process of it, but he hasn't got a lead yet. Um, and, you know, it's a bit asked the question, what happens if you take away take away from the reader everything they like about a character. What happens is there's no supernatural elements because that part of him has not been opened yet. There is no empathy and compassion because he has none. He's just this creature of grief and rage. And he, he, you know, he arrives in the small town. He doesn't care that young women are being killed. He just doesn't care. All he wants to do is leave. He wants to leave mm-hmm. and he wants to find the man who killed his wife and child and either be killed by him or kill him and preferably both. You know, so that he doesn't have to be in pain anymore. Um, and even that's an experiment. Even that's a chance to say, you know, look here. You th- do you think you know this man? Do you think you like him? Well, do you like this? This is him. Um, and it is that, you know, that that urge. I, I'm just, I, maybe I just get bored very easily. But I, I just think there are so many possibilities within within writing, within within genre. Um, and yet it's also quite confining. There are only, there's only so much experimentation you can do within the context of a series. There just is. There's a limit to what you can do uh, because there's a certain familiarity that the reader has. And there are, whether you want to acknowledge it or not, certain commercial imperatives. You know, the Parker books, they buy, I love doing them. Um, uh, and they, they buy me in a sense of the time and the space to, to write other things as well. You know, because the Parker books have done well, I could write he for virtually no advance. I can write a book like Nocturnes and, and give it to my publishers just for royalties. You know, I, I can I can experiment, and Parker allows me to do that. But by experimenting in those other areas, when I come back to Parker, I feel reinvigorated. And I also kind of look at the Parker books and go, okay, well, what can I? how can I apply what I've learned to these? How can I stretch them a little bit every time? How can I surprise the readers they don't just think oh yeah I've, I've read this one before yeah what I quite like is that it's often very hard to get readers to agree on which book they like because even if you like the character there's no way you can like every book in this series you know there just isn't some of them differ so much tonally or structurally from each other that they're not going to appeal to everybody and I'm, I'm quite happy about that I'm quite happy that there may be books in the series that even long time readers maybe don't like very much what I like is that they often can't really agree on which book they don't like very much. <laughs> you know, at least yeah. everyone in the university go, yeah, that fifth one, that one sucked. You know? <laughs> well, the one thing they can't say is, hey, you know, the one thing they can't say is, well, John Connolly just writes the same book over and over. That is not yeah, true at all. He's treading water. He's, he's taking advantage of the fact that we have affection for this character. Because yeah, as a writer, you can do that. Yeah. Absolutely you can do that. You know, what's wonderful about mystery readers is their loyalty. Uh, but their loyalty is primarily to characters and not writers. So when, when, like I said, when writers deviate, you'll shed readers because they don't want to read your great experimental Russian novel. You know, they want to, you know, it's like me, I, you know, I, I, I'm a big joke, Lucas Sanford. I, I like John Sanford. I think John Sanford's a really, really underrated writer. Uh, but, you know, if Sanford said to me, oh, I'm going to write a great Russian novel, I'd go, great, is, is Lucas Savonport going to be in it? You know, that would be my view. And if he isn't, I'm not sure I want to read that, John. Even I'm like that. Um, 
Because you know, one of the it's one of the the, the the lovely things about mystery fiction is that we we get to spend time with characters. We get to spend time spend time with the same characters year after year after year. And I sometimes wonder why um, literary fiction doesn't do that more often. You know, there was a great tradition of it. If you read Trollope, you know, Trollope would do that. There were there's a history of kind of literary writers following families and. Um, and it, but in the 20th century, we didn't see that much of it. You know, John Updike did it with the Rabbit books and the Beck books. Um, Richard Ford did it with Frank Bascom novels. But, you know, you're kind of looking at the exceptions frequently rather than the rule. And yet, you know, there is, in a way, something quite fascinating about maybe following a character from his youth to old age. I'd say something like James Lee Burke has done with Robichaud. You know, because mm-hmm. the, the texture of the books changes. The texture of the books changes because the person at the heart of them is changing, is getting older. His view of the world is, should be modifying, I suppose. And, and th- so there are possibilities within, within, the, within the genre that, that I sometimes think other writers could probably look at and take advantage of. Um, but, you know, uh, to each their own. Yeah. Well, you, you actually, um, you, you're kind of leading into my question for you which is when Charlie Parker was formed in your mind, did you see everything about him or are you learning about him as you are writing these books? And do you have an end game in mind for him eventually? Um, you know, no, I, I don't really believe writers who say that they have a trajectory for a character mapped out from the beginning. I, I, that smacks to me of reverse engineering, I think, a little bit. Um, you know, most of us are just completely surprised when we're published first. You know, you do get, you, you, you hope that somebody is going to publish you, otherwise you probably wouldn't be writing. But it's still a bit of a shocker when somebody says, actually, we do like this and we are going to publish it. And I suddenly have to live with everything you've done. And um, I'm not by nature a planner. And I suppose that's the difference. Um, I, even when I sit down within individual novels, I, I won't really know what I'm doing until about two-thirds of the way through. It's a very gradual process of exploration. And that's to do with the fact, I think, and I hope that I write very character-driven novels. And if you're writing character-driven novels, you can't write them as novel writing for dummies, where, you know, the character, you, you sit down, you put a piece of paper and say, you know, the character's six foot three, you know, like, wears hats, like likes lattes, you know, follows the Dodgers or whatever it might be. That's not really character writing. Part of it, for me, is, is trying to discover what the character's about. And that's, as you, the question you asked, is as much Parker as anybody, because he has changed as the books have gone on, and, you know, he's still, there's still parts of him to explore for me. Um, and as for an endgame, yeah. Um, one of the things I'd always wanted to do was to write a sequence of novels, books that were interlinked, um, so that if you read them in order, you had that sense that you were watching a larger plot unfolding. And at some point, that larger plot will require a conclusion. And, you know, if I was told by my doctor, you know, you know, you've had a good run, but, you know, don't book any holidays after, you know, next January, I'd probably be... You know, I'm hoping to beat the odds and be the first immortal, but um, I, I, would be able, I would be able to um, to give readers what I think would be a conclusion that would be satisfying and that would answer a lot of the questions that they have. So, uh, yeah, I do know if I had to write a final chapter, which I, I really don't want to do for a while because I do enjoy writing these books, I, I know really what that final chapter would be. Uh, but as I said, I still, you know, it's, it's not that I'm sitting there thinking, God, I'm sick of writing these books. Can I find a way to, to put an end to them? 
I would find it very difficult now to to not be able to write about these characters and to not look at the world through their eyes, assuming that's the conclusion that that, that that's going to be given, which we'll have we'll have to wait and see. Yeah. Cool. So John, so real, so real quick, so so kind of last question because we uh, this has been fascinating, I tell you. But I got to we got to kind of ask this because I mean everybody people like to know. So why is it that your books come out kind of six months be in the UK before they kind of hit the US? Is is it like a contractual thing or something? No, no. This was this was just a decision uh, Atria had made for this particular book. The, the gap for this particular book was longer than it had ever been before, and okay. I was very uncomfortable with it for the reason that you just said. I don't see why readers have to wait that long. And also in this day and age, when people can order online, it becomes a bit redundant. So. The next book will yeah. come out at the end of April in the UK, and I think at the end of June, start of July in the US. So, just okay. a much shorter gap. You know, hey, so I understand. You got to give. Like, I mean, you're like, you know, you're from Europe. Well, you got to give the European readers, you know, the first crack at it before we get it. So I get that, but I was like six months. Well, we're <laughs> one big. Despite what some of our politicians say, we're all big one. We're all one people. We're all God. We are one people. You're right. <laughs> if the meteor it. hits. If the meteor hits the earth, it ain't gonna it ain't gonna be the conservative party or the liberal party. It's every fucking oh, no, party's dead. We're all dead. Together. <laughs> we're all dead. <laughs> yeah. So, hey, so John, um, where's the best place for everybody to find out about all your information? Is it just johnconnellybooks.com? Johnconnellybooks.com. We we update it regularly. It's got all kinds of quirky, excuse me, little things on it. So, uh, yeah, that's the best place to go. Uh, do you have any events scheduled? Do you know for like uh, 2020? Do you know if you're going to be going to any conferences that people can run into you, like Thriller no, Fest no, or BoucherCon? No, or conferences as much anymore. One of the things as I got older was that I found huge groups of people more difficult than I used to find it when I was younger. And also, to be fair, I don't want to be around people like me who are like me when I was younger. I wouldn't want That's to be near a young me. So, you know, those young people shouting in bars, good lord, keep it down. People trying to have a nap here. Exactly. Uh, so I don't have anything except <laughs> for next year's yet. Okay. Well, that, if we hit Ireland, I'll have to email you. Maybe we can just go have dinner. Nice and you quiet. Little pub. Oh. No one talking. Yeah, we, we, have, we have alcohol. We have pubs. We can do that. Oh, I thought that would work. All right. Well, hey, John, it's always a pleasure. Um, of course, the book is called A Book of Bones. It released is now in the United States. Uh, it came out UK in April, but we won't talk about that. But it's out now, 17 book in the Charlie Parker book. And, John, like always, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Wish you nothing but the best. And, you know, can't wait to see what you got coming in the future. And just for the thing of it, we loved He, and my wife thought it was probably one of the best books that you've ever written, book written-wise. I mean, and she absolutely fell in love with it. She's a huge fan yeah, of yours, and she just loved it. Oh. Sounds like, I, she sounds like a woman of taste and discernment, as you probably already knew. Yeah, and she still married me. Can you believe it? I don't know. So, you know, <laughs> there's that. Every, every man who finds a woman who puts up with him is punching above his weight, okay? We should never be offered bended knees, thanking God. Yeah, I ain't, I ain't not looking to give horse in the mouth. I'm just going to take it and run with it, I'll tell you that. So, uh, All right, John, you have a good one. I appreciate it, and we'll talk to you soon. Continue success, gentlemen. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Thanks so much.